When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, you'll note that in the introduction, I omitted the word nearly when I talk about how long we've been doing this show. And that's because it's the CME's birthday this week. Is that a fact? I have Basically, no idea. Yep. No, we're, we're, we're close. Obviously not the exact day, but uh, okay. yeah, nine years when ago this week. When is the exact day? I believe it what, is what? the 22nd or 23rd. So this Saturday or Sunday will be the co-main event podcast's actual birthday, I think. You know, you and I are notoriously great at keeping track of this kind of stuff. So yeah. I could be completely wrong, but I don't know. It's going to be like Jesus's birthday, man. We're just going to decide to celebrate it this week and say that it's. I'm glad you nine, made that analogy. Nine frankly, years that we've been doing it this show. It will be a lot like Jesus's birthday, frankly, because this kind of an apples to apples comparison, honestly. I, but hey, I'll take your word for it on when the CME's birthday is. And I'll just say, you think of what I'm thinking? Sheet cake. Yeah, it's just going to say sheet Supermarket cake. Supermarket sheet cake. Yeah. In this one instance, I was actually thinking what you were thinking. Yeah. Giant We get our, both of our faces on there, a CME logo. Uh, maybe we get like a, get them to put an icing hashtag Tracy time in there or some shit like that. And uh, we have ourselves a celebration. Yeah. We go what get one say? of those big tubs of ice cream you can get over at Winco now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the CME birthday celebration. It's turning nine, so it's probably going to want uh, some toys and, uh, I don't know, maybe a, maybe a tablet, just judging yeah, from my, th- my own nine-year-old, what she wants. Is this the age we have to start arguing with it about whether or not it can have a cell phone? Yeah, screen time. We're going to have to start putting some real mm. limitations on screen time here. Uh, we got a lightweight I just can't wait for it to get... 
old enough that we can set it out in the world and it can fend for itself. That's yeah, what no, me to. too. Uh, we got a lightweight bonanza on the program this week, Ben. Not only did we crown a 155-pound champion over the weekend at UFC 262, Charles Oliveira obviously defeats Michael Chandler. You got Benil Dariush also taking out Tony Ferguson to establish himself as one of the elite fighters in that division. But, man, you just look around. The, the, the Shark Tank, noted as MMA's most competitive division, and uh, big things are happening right now in the lightweight division. Yeah. And just frankly, a division where you can kind of put all the names in a hat, just shake it up, pull two out and you come up with a crackerjack of a fight. Yeah. No, you really can. I can't complain about that. Remember you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This podcast drops every Monday in your podcast libraries or timelines. And if you think we're having fun right now, you need to check us out over at patreon.com slash co-main event. We're over there rocking with three additional podcasts every single week. If you don't get your MMA fix from this show, you can check out the Wednesday live chat or the Friday power hour. And of course, every Thursday we got the movie club podcast. That's, that's for the true heads, the top tier patrons of the co-main event podcast this week. Seeing as how it's grab bag movie month, we're going to be watching the uh, the raid, which I understand is a martial arts classic of sorts. Yeah, the people demanded it. Frankly, they did. We didn't they really, really have did. much say in the matter. The people grabbed us by the scruff of our necks and said, "Listen, we're watching the raid this week." Yeah, it's goofs. basically like the podcast version of when Suge Knight held the Elias out the window by his legs. We- <laughs> yeah, that's that is that's another apples to apples comparison. We're on a yeah. roll so far. Mm-hmm. We had going, no you, choice but to agree. You know what you can feel right now is nine years of podcast uh, chemistry just happening mm-hmm. live as, right. as we record this. It's amazing. You can't buy that kind of experience. But you could buy this podcast, which has that kind of experience. So just keep that in mind if you're a wealthy Silicon Valley investor. Speaking of buying stuff, if you really want to support the team, I'd love it if you'd buy my newest novel, The Blaze, wherever books are sold. Publishers Weekly called it an exceptional thriller. The plot soars with each believable twist and realistic characters worth rooting for. So go out and grab The Blaze today. Remember, if you have read it or you do read it and you enjoy it, Go leave a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, review The Blaze. Wherever is best for for you. We got music this week from our guys Foreign Cash. That's C-A-C-H-E, an L.A.-based production duo. If you like what you hear from Foreign Cash on the show, you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreigncash. Again, C-A-C-H-E in the word cash. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, all hail King Chuck. After almost 11 years and nearly 30 UFC fights, the Charles Oliveira era is finally underway. So that was a bit of a slow burn. And in round number two, Benil Dariush is that dude, and he'd like to dedicate this big win to the victims of Marxist ideology and also call out Elon Musk. And why is every single person involved in this sport such a fucking weirdo, man? It's exhausting. And in round number three, it's like lightweight felt featherweight, 
breathing down its neck as potentially the most interesting division in the UFC and said, hold my beer, motherfucker. We got King Chuck. We got Poirier versus McGregor. We got Benil Dariush. We got Mikey C in the place to be. We got Justin Gaethje. And you know it's not like T. Ferg is just going to say cool and peace out the game. Shit is shaping up to be very interesting in this division for the rest of the year. And we'll talk about what happens next. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes from beloved patron of the co-main event podcast, Isaac Spooner. His subject line on the email says, Barboza brutally batters Burgos. So, okay. you know we're going to get down with that alliteration right there. Yeah, that's how you catch our attention. That and being a Patreon. He writes, fellas, well, it finally happened. Edson Barboza knocked someone out with a punch. Fittingly, for such a rare cosmic event, it was some weird shit. Please discourse. This, Ben, was some weird shit with Edson Barboza's third round KO of Shane Burgos. As I tweeted on Saturday night, it looked like Edson Barboza pulled the power cord out from Shane Burgos, but it still took a second for the light to fade out of his eyes where yeah. Shane Burgos's brain realized that he had been knocked out. He stumbled backwards, bounced off the cage, and then Edson Barbosa comes up and, and you know gets the stoppage there on the ground. Uh, a big win for Barbosa, a guy who now is, is, is looking like he might be someone to contend with at featherweight. But just how weird was this knockout, man? Yeah, I mean, because he hits him with just a stinging one-two combination. And... Credit, I guess, to Burgos because he no-sells it pretty well at first. Yeah. And it's like you can see him just focusing really hard on not showing that you're hurt, trying to stay in it, but his body just can't do it. His body, he's, he's, it seems like he manages to keep himself up as long as he does through sheer force of will. And it's like one of those, you're, you're drunk and you're telling yourself, I feel like I might have to vomit, but no, no. Mm-mm, I'm not going to. I'm absolutely not going to. And you're fighting it. And then your body just says, you know what? We're taking over here. Something's got to give. And he just sort of fades back. And I, I mean, it reminded me a little, like, especially the look on his face as he's trying to, like, really grit down and, and stay upright. I remember once a uh, a Brazilian dude running, like, a jiu-jitsu and MMA class I was in. He used to have us practice spinning around, getting ourselves really dizzy, and then quickly standing up and putting our, our, our fists up in fighting position and, like, trying not to stagger, trying not to visibly show that you are wounded. You know, tougher than you think. An interesting thing to try to practice. And you could see, like, Burgos was trying to do it. And he was, like, doing an impressive job for the, the force of that punch. But then just his legs just couldn't stay with it. And the, the vertigo, it seemed, like, kind of overtook him. When you see a guy go down like that, that's just scary to watch because you you do have to wonder what really happened in his brain there. Is he okay after that? And he claims that he is. I mean, he said that basically like he had a bruised tibia or something. That was like the worst damage he suffered. Said that they went to the hospital afterwards and at least claimed that he didn't have a concussion. But it's scary to watch a guy go down like that. Yeah, it was. It, it might have been the longest delayed reaction knockout that I've ever seen. You know, because yeah. we've, we've seen some of those KOs before. But this one... Uh, was really pronounced in terms of the amount of time that passed between Edson Barbosa landing the punch and Shane Burgos's body realizing uh, that it needed to take a rest. So it was it was uh, it, it was pretty uh, 
weird to see. It was very arresting to see it happen that way. And I couldn't tell like if, if Burgos just got knocked out and like it took his body a second to react or if it was just that his equilibrium got kind of screwed up and he was trying to fight through it, but in the end just couldn't really keep his balance. But it was very strange. One of the stranger things uh, that I've seen just in terms of a knockout in this in this business for a while. Of course, those two guys uh, get fight of the night honors on this UFC 262 card and uh, Edson Barbosa notches what he would should be i think by all rights his third consecutive win since moving to featherweight uh but he had that split decision loss to dan ige uh back in may of last year but now wins over marquan amir khani and shaden burgos so things are looking up i think for edson barbosa there at 145 pounds yeah and he frankly looked great in this fight just kind of all the way around so yeah yeah Next question this week comes to us from Trevor Finch, who writes, Well, my longtime guy, Wind Whispers, Jacare, Jacare, got his whole arm shit broke. I came into this one wanting a win for him, but the MMA gods saw otherwise. With the UFC being cut happy, is it possible we just saw his last fight in the UFC? Uh, Before we talk about what will ultimately be the fate of Jacare Souza, uh, after this kind of nasty technical submission armbar loss uh, to Andre Muniz here in the featured prelim prelim at UFC 262. Uh, let's just talk for a second about this submission, man. This was nasty. Like uh, Andre Muniz just snapped his arm and you could hear it on the broadcast. Yeah. Uh, and then possibly my, <laughs> my favorite thing about it was Jacare standing up, smiling, giving the guy a hug, acting like getting his arm broke was no big deal in the immediate aftermath of that. Not only could you hear it, but from the sort of reverse angle, you could see the moment it snaps, you could see his whole shoulder just drop. Like where his whole, the whole structural integrity of his arm kind of gives in right at that moment. And man, that was bad. And it also, it, it felt like it kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't like one of those, usually when we see an arm bar where somebody gets their arm broken, you just kind of see it coming. Yeah. You see it slowly developing where you're going, this son of a bitch isn't going to tap, is he? He's going to make us watch his arm turn into a twist tie. And I hate that. It's one of the things I've learned to deal with so much other stuff, so much human wreckage that we've gotten used to in MMA. And for some reason, somebody allowing their arm to just get bent all out of shape really messes with me more than anything. But this one, it felt like you know the guy's going for it, but it didn't really seem like you knew Jacare was in obvious peril right up until it snapped. Yeah. And, you know, I... I was up in uh, Kalispell working on a story for this one, so I was kind of following along on Twitter and watching fight videos and, and stuff on as soon as they were over, as I could as I could do it. And I was up there with a friend of mine who owns the uh, SBG Whitefish Gym and teaches MMA and Jiu-Jitsu and stuff up there. And he was like, "Well, have you seen the video of Jacques Array getting his arm broke in the uh, like Moon Dials uh, like finals against Hodger Gracie?" And I was like, "No, I hadn't." So he pulls it up on his phone. Like later, we we're watching it, you know, Gi Jiu-Jitsu. They're in there. Hodger Gracie gets him in an arm bar off his back in the guard. And they kind of end up like rolling out of bounds as Jacare is trying to escape. But like gets his arm damaged in that one. And then just just like tucks it into the belt. Tucks, tucks the useless now arm into his belt. Goes out there with one hand and finishes the match and wins on points. And so maybe it should not have been a surprise to us that Jacare, A was willing to let his arm get snapped 
in the pursuit of victory, and B, was really, you know, not even that perturbed by it after it happened. Still yeah. maintained his positive good nature. Yeah, it ain't no thing for Jacare Sousa to get his arm busted, apparently. They did reference that uh, that jujitsu incident during the broadcast here. I think you gotta you got to credit Andre Muniz here, who in the lead-up to this fight said that he thought he was the better grappler, which obviously seemed outlandish at the time, but then he went out there and uh, and backed it up, had a couple of pretty picture-perfect double-leg takedowns during this this first round, uh, and then eventually finishes with the armbar, nabbing his third straight UFC win, plus two in a row on Dana White's contender series before he made it to the UFC proper. This is a guy... Uh, who is not a rookie, man. This is, even though he's just a few fights into his UFC career, he had extensive experience down in Brazil before uh, coming to America. And he has fought at light heavyweight before. At one point uh, during about 2000, let's say 14 to 2016, he nabs, I think, eight or nine submission wins in a row, fighting in, in independent organizations down there in Brazil, has a win over Paulo Filo, uh, under his belt here, so a big win, obviously here to to out grapple and and score a technical and nasty technical submission over Jacare here, obviously. But uh, Andre Muniz seems like uh, maybe he just established himself as a guy to watch. I don't know. Well, what do you think about this question though? This, did we see Jacare in the UFC for the last time after that? Well, I mean, hey man, it's a cold business, but it would be it would be some cold blooded shit. Uh, to call Jacare Sousa this week and be like, hey, man, I uh, just wanted to check in, see how the arm is, what the timetable is on your recovery, and also your cut. You no longer have a job. I get that. But this is a cold business, and he's lost four straight now. Yeah. So, and like, we we were thinking of his name back when Dana White said that we were going to see some surprising cuts and some guys with some big names who are going to be cut. Jacare's been around a while, you know, probably making at least relative for the UFC pretty good money to show up now. And if you're thinking, well, four in a row, we don't know if there is a place for him going forward. Plus, we get, you know, three or four of these young guys in here for the price of one Jacare. I could see how the UFC would do the math on that one and the end result is Sean Shelby has to call him up and have that exact conversation. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I guess if you're Sean Shelby, you got to have those phone calls. We know that the UFC has been in belt tightening mode a little bit here throughout the Endeavor era. Uh, and Jacare, as we noted, I think during last Wednesday's live chat has that pre-existing relationship with Scotty Cokes from the strike force days. So he, he could be a guy that could land on his feet somewhere else. I just think, you know, you know, it it is a tough business if number one you get your arm broke while you're at work on Saturday night and then they call you up later in the week to tell you no no need to come back. We sent we sent up we cleared out your locker and sent you a box full of stuff. So, we 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 wish you best in your in your future endeavors. Next question this week comes to us from 60s and 70s singer Burt Bacharach, who writes, okay. snapping Jacare's arm doesn't net you 75K? Does the UFC want to steer clear of glorifying an injury like this? What did you think of the bonuses as a whole? Love you, dudes. So we, we inflated the bonuses. The UFC's performance-based post-fight bonuses went from $50,000 to $75,000 for this event. Ironically enough, at the request of Tony Ferguson. Uh, during a pre-fight media event, tossed it out there that we should make the the 
the post fight bonus is $75,000 for this event. Got a big roar from the crowd uh, as he is so often want to do. Dana White was like, fine, let's do it. Increases the bonuses. And then, of course, uh, Tony Ferguson doesn't get a piece of it. Your fight of the night was Edson Barbosa versus Shane Burgos, which we just talked about. Performances of the night were Charles Oliveira and Christos Gallegos. Uh, my feelings about the UFC's post-fight bonus system are well-established at this point, and that is we would be better served just taking our yearly post-fight bonus uh, budget and splitting it up among the fighters on the roster and calling it something else just to give these guys a little bit extra money. Uh, but this is the system that we that we trundle forward under, and uh, here you got these winners. But I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of sense in this question, man. It doesn't seem like you could have a better or more uh, impactful submission than Andre Muniz here on Jacare Souza. So uh, if I was him, yeah, I might be asking some tough questions about where my seventy five thousand dollars was at. Yeah, especially if you're thinking of not only the quality of the submission, but what that submission win means. Like being the first guy to get a submission on Jacques Array in MMA is uh, that's a that'd be kind of a big deal. You would think that it might be a bigger deal than Christos Gallegos getting a like a you know a sweet Bravo choke on uh, Sean Soriano to put him to sleep, and but in like the curtain jerker, the the first fight of the prelims. It does. It seems like there's just a big difference in the the size of the the fight and yeah. the the meaning of the submission. Like if you told Andre Muniz that like, hey, the good news, you're gonna submit Jacare tonight, and he'd be like, awesome. But he's like, but it won't be the submission of the night. He'd probably be pretty mystified, and yeah. he'd probably think, well, the other one must have been absolutely spectacular, right? It must have been somebody just inventing an entirely new submission that we have. It's got to be something amazing. And it was just you know, it was a good way for Christos Gagos to get back and, and win that fight. And when there were some moments where it hadn't gone great for him up until that point, but it wasn't anything like so mind blowing. So yeah, I don't know if the, maybe the UFC, we know how they had changed those bonuses years before from being specifically knockout of the night and submission of the night. And it seemed at the time, like maybe the UFC's looking down the road here at concussion lawsuits or some sort of liability issue where, Somebody's going to go take them to court and point out, you actually incentivize people to knock each other unconscious. And so, therefore, you're responsible for some of these brain issues. And the guy goes out there and get his arm snapped. And if you say, we want to specifically reward that activity, maybe you worry that it looks bad. But also, if I'm Andre Muniz, that would not be much of a comfort to me. Yeah. You know? Though, the finally bumping the bonuses up, I'll be interested to see if we just go right back to $50,000 after that. Because... They've been at $50,000 for a long time. And you remember back when it used to be, it used to change per event. It'd be 60000 sometimes, it'd be above that. And then, then establishing it as like a blanket fifty and keeping it that way for years and years. And you're like, the $50,000 that you would get as a bonus now isn't worth the same as it was when you first started doing it, you know, like seven, eight years ago, something like that. I Maybe it's about time somebody finally nudged that up. Yeah, uh, also interesting. I know we're going to talk about Christos Gallegos a bit more here in this next question, but he actually might have talked his way into this uh, post-fight bonus here because he jumps on the mic after he catches uh, Sean Soriano in that choke and says, you know, when Dana White sweetens the deal from fifty to $75,000, you got to go for broke, basically. So maybe played to the ego of the uh, of the UFC president a little bit there and, and in, in kind gets rewarded with the $75,000 bonus that leads us here into this question from David Lopan, who is 
the main antagonist in the 1986 action comedy film Big Trouble in Little China. He is a merciless and conniving sorcerer who just wants to have flesh again in order to rule the universe. So, okay. Glad he well, could like, take some. Like, we need to be told who David Lopan is. Remember Lopan? He Big writes. Big Trouble in Little China? Don't you put that evil on Cowboy Cerrone, Christos Gallegos. So, uh, short and sweet here from the main antagonist of the 1986 action comedy film Big Trouble in Little China. A pretty respectful call out, I guess, at least from Christos Gallegos here after he gets the comeback victory over Sean Soriano. But man, I feel like we just processed a whole lot of emotions this past week about Diego Sanchez getting released from the UFC and his fight with Donald Cerrone getting getting pulled off that card. And we got to try to figure out what's going on with Diego and Josh Fabia. And then Cerrone comes out and loses to Alex Morano. And we're all kind of standing around being like, well, he's probably at the nearing the end of his rope and he wants one more fight. And Dana White is going to give it to him. And we're all sitting around just thinking, please, let's give Cowboy someone else on the senior circuit. That he could go out here and maybe bring the boat into harbor with his head up high and we don't have to worry about him suffering too much too much more damage. And now you got Christos Gallegos, who uh, I have interviewed before and seems like a nice dude, issuing the respectful call out of Cowboy Cerrone here. But I think we all winced a little bit and we're like, nah, man, yeah, let's do something else rather than that. Yeah, I if I had my choice, it would be way more seniors tour kind of fight for Donald Cerrone than something like this. Because it just seems like, okay, we're going to go out there, probably get Donald Cerrone beat up and be sad all over again. And for what? Like, But then, you know what? I feel like when they gave Donald Cerrone Diego Sanchez, that was an attempt to do the seniors tour kind of fight. And, you know, they, look what happened. It fell apart. And then you end up in there getting blasted by Alex Morono right in the face. So, I, I don't know. I I would think that the UFC probably has a little more affection for Donald Cerrone than that. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if we're going to book him a senior circuit fight next, we try to do one that does not involve a guy who is potentially involved with a shady spiritual advisor and uh, maybe a little bit less of a cult type situation happening. Maybe we steer steer clear of any situation like that and we can... We can actually get someone to the cage here for Donald Cerrone to fight. I don't know. Man, isn't that's a commentary on our sport, isn't it? That the the bar we ask you to clear is to be in a little less of a cult type situation <laughs> with your spiritual uh, advisor slash coach. Actually, it's sort of an interesting situation here in the first fight of the night at UFC 262, where Sean Soriano moved up from 145 pounds and took this fight against Christos Gallegos on short notice. Uh, at lightweight, he'd been away from the UFC for six years trying to to work his way back. And then, uh, you know, they give you the opportunity to do it. He figures he takes he would take this chance and fight Christos Gallegos up a division. He actually afforded himself pretty well during this fight, as we mentioned, that the uh, the choke submission was sort of a come from behind thing for Gallegos in the second round. Gallegos, I'm sorry, uh, Soriano, he looked pretty sharp with his hands. He stung Gallegos multiple times in the first round. I came away from this fight, uh, you know, not only happy for Christos Gallegos to nab the win here, but also hoping that Sean Soriano gets another shot because, you know, he had been uh, making his way through the independent circuit, trying to get back to the UFC for a long time. So kind of a feel good story for him. I hope we get to see him in his natural weight class against somebody in the UFC at some point later this year. Yeah, he did look good early in that fight. 
Uh, last question this week comes to us from former professional wrestler Iron Mike Sharp. Uh, he re- he remember he writes, I can't remember ever hearing a submission like what happened to Jocka Ray in such a manner. God damn, that was bad. And then there was the nasty armbar from KGB Lee and the painful look on Tony's face as Darius was sending his leg ligaments to the dark side. There seems to be an uptick in jujitsu lately and some more sweeping and scrambling submission wrestling uh, like the fight with the fishermen last week, it seemed like the sport was trending down on these styles of matches and scenarios. And as a card carrying member of the Damian Maya jujitsu on VHS club, I'm liking the resurgence of it. Uh, Ben, obviously as the jujitsu correspondent for the co-main event podcast, I will kick this one to you. Does it seem to you like the gentle art uh, is having a bit of a, of a Renaissance these days? Well, first of all, let me take a moment to just say jujitsu. Yeah. Okay. That had to be said. It's insightful. Now, yeah. I mean, you know, you get somebody out there pulling, like going for heel hooks and we're snapping arms. You know that a lot of members of the, the Demian Maya VHS of MM, Jiu-Jitsu for MMA fan club are taking their shirts off and whipping them around in the living room shouting Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Like that's just, that's a given. That is an yeah. like all caps Jiu-Jitsu, several exclamation points. Now, I do think it's interesting that the way jujitsu is used in MMA has undergone several evolutions, and a lot of them even just in the last like ten years or so. Because you know we got to a point there where basically, with the exception of Ronda Rousey, nobody was even doing arm bars anymore. Yeah, just because uh, like a combination of everybody's pretty good at defending them. The you're you're often going to put yourself on your back in order to go for one and give up a good position. People were just way less likely to be trying to like give up position to go for a, like a potential fight ending submission. And it was way more often that we saw somebody hurt with strikes to some extent or trying to get up off the bottom and give up their back and give up their neck. And we'd see mostly chokes coming from that. Side. And now you're seeing a little bit more. I mean, you have some specialists who have always been sort of leg lockers and things like that. But I think that there are like another maybe another wave of evolutions coming where people who are really adept at all these other aspects of the game are also realizing like, okay, there are some openings for me here where I can attempt some of this stuff. But also like the, I think one of the big changes you see, especially when it comes to arm bars kind of stuff is like, if you were going for an arm bar and an MMA fight in a cage fight at the UFC level, you better be going for it with the attitude of like, I'm going to grab your arm and immediately break it. Like, I'm not going to grab your arm and try to extend it and see if you realize that you're fucked. Because at that level, you just, you, you can't approach it like that. You need to, anytime you're going for that arm bar, you better have it in your mind to just break that shit right away. And even then, I mean, we've seen people who can get extended pretty badly in submissions. I'm sure we'll talk about Tony Ferguson later. And they can kind of tough it out. But you know, it's like, uh, you got Helio Gracie said for the choke, there are no tough guys, Chad. That's why I think that we, we've seen it kind of just trend in one direction. But I do think that as just a, a different type of athlete and, and with a different range of experience and skill sets get in there, I think there are opportunities to bring more different types of submission into MMA. Yeah, I guess it's, it seems like part of a natural evolution of any sport that people are going to figure out, you know, what is the best strategy under the provided rule set in order to win these fights. And I think, as you said, for a long time, you started to see people choosing positional superiority over taking the risk of going for a submission and, and losing 
you know, the dominant position on the ground or, or top position or whatever it may be. And, and people had figured out that like with five minute rounds and a 10 point must system, that was probably the best way to go about it. Now I do wonder if things are starting to swing back the other way. You heard again, Christos Gallegos say in his post fight interview, after choking out Sean Soriano that in the past, a lot of times he had passed up what seemed to be promising submission opportunities in order to keep his position. And then he said, but at this point, I feel like I got to go for broke, like I'm going for these opportunities. So that's an interesting, you know, maybe a surprising amount of uh, Christos Gallegos content on this week's CME podcast. (laughs) But at the same time, like, uh, you know, that's one guy anecdotally providing you evidence with like a change in in perspective or a change in attitude that like he has realized now maybe he is good enough at submissions that it's worthwhile for him to go for them. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if there's any kind of statistical data to back that up, any kind of resurgence of, of jujitsu much to the chagrin, I'm sure of our guy, Sean Sheehan over there in Ireland, uh, a noted uh, practitioner of the point of view that jujitsu doesn't work. So uh, he's, he's not loving it right now. I think you've also seen it. It's not just a, in terms like an evolution in terms of like what submissions people go for. Like you've seen a major evolution in that almost no one really bases their game around trying to pass the guard and advance into more dominant positions the way we used to, the way right. like jujitsu basically teaches you. And like I still remember talking to uh, Coach Robert Fallis about it and when I was doing a story on him in Extreme Couture and I was still doing a lot of jiu-jitsu at the time and I, it's like, he's a black belt. Let me ask him like one of these problems that I face a lot where I was like, okay, give me some of your tips about like defeating the knee shield and moving to like side control. And he was like, why? What we want, what we practice is like, if I can get to half guard and hold you down that way, I'd rather stay there. Because I feel like I have a much better chance to just like anchor your leg down to the mat, hold you there, beat you up from on top. I'm definitely winning the round, and maybe I make you increasingly desperate, and you just you give me something in attempt. And if I go to side control at this level, everybody's so good that they can usually escape from side control. You're you're really giving them an opportunity to get up off the bottom when you don't have to, and it's just a completely different sort of way to approach it. Yeah. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. Remember, if you have a question, comment, or a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. What a treat from Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler in the main event of UFC 262 for the vacant UFC lightweight title. Charles Oliveira emerges victorious after a second round TKO over Michael Chandler here. Just in an all-action fight with multiple momentum swings, multiple times where both guys looked to be in trouble, multiple times where both guys got to show their strengths and their toughness and their durability. Oh, And all that squeezed into a little bit less than five minutes and 20 seconds. Been a whole lot of living here from Charles Oliveira and Michael Chandler, considering they spent a fairly short time together in this championship fight. What do you think of the bout? What do you think now about King Chuck reigning 
over the 155 pound weight class. You're not lying about a whole lot of live impact into that fight because it seemed like a fight that was nothing but swings, just big swings in each direction where, you know, you, you got Chandler trying to deal with Oliveira being on his back, seemed like in a tough situation. I think if you told Michael Chandler that he would spend a portion of round one right off the bat when he doesn't have a, like, a good sweat going or anything with Charles Oliveira on his back with a body triangle, he'd be like, well, oh no. That probably, probably does not bode well for me to have the like all-time submission leader in the UFC stuck to your back right off the bat in the first round. And then he ends the first round by looking like he has Oliveira really hurt and like he might be close to a finish himself. I love too Charles Oliveira when he gets rocked and he's down there on all fours doing the Nick Diaz head movement even on the ground thing. Yeah, that we saw from that that Paul Daly fight, you know, just showing them you're still in it, showing them that you're you're still aware, and not just staying in one spot and taking those hard shots. And Chandler, it seemed like he had a moment there, like late in the first round, where he had Charles Oliveira on his back up against the fence, and he had an opportunity to just sort of try to keep pouring on the punches, but and maybe smartly recognize, I don't know if I want to just recklessly dive into this guy's guard and. You know, be just trying to swing wildly. I want to like take take care here. Don't spend everything you have right off the bat, and don't get yourself submitted just because you think you might be closer to a finish than you are. But then, you know, right off the bat when you start the second round, that that sneaky left hook that Charles Oliveira lands, it's just like like a long whip, like a like a snake bite that just reaches out and catches Michael Chandler right as he is sort of floating backwards. And on all, like both feet sort of coming off the mat right as he gets hit. And that just does not give you much of a chance to take that, that blow. And yeah. he never gets back in after that. And Charles Oliveira just puts it on him and keeps hammering him with that left hand as he's trying to escape. And that's just a, a really pretty masterful performance by Charles Oliveira, showing that he can hurt you a lot of different ways. Yeah, it's just an insane finishing sequence from Oliveira where he floored Michael Chandler with that hook and then followed up with a flurry of punches and a knee and a couple of hard right hands. And then that additional left hook that put Michael Chandler down for good. And then, man, you know, one of the one of the feel good championship celebrations, I guess, of all time. Shades of Jose Aldo here where uh, Charles Oliveira jumps over the cage and has some words for the broadcast team, runs over and smears blood on Dana White and then uh, runs into the crowd, gives Reed Harris a big kiss when Reed Harris is going out there to pull him out of the crowd. And it's got to feel good for Charles Oliveira who, here, who has had as long a road from UFC debut to championship moment as anyone in the history of the sport, man. And, and at this point has developed into a guy who is obviously dangerous in all areas, you know, and he looks patient, but just like deadly technical as a striker who also has an extremely dangerous submission game where he is able to put his opponents in sort of a, a pick your poison situation now. And, uh, you know, from Michael, Ch for Michael Chandler, uh, in some ways was, was able to finish this fight on the feet where I think we thought Michael Chandler might have a power advantage. We saw some of that in the first round, but just like the way this thing ended just made me reflect on how dangerous now Charles Oliveira is in almost any position. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you, I mean, you mentioned his long, long road to a UFC title, and I really like seeing it happen this way for, for some people because I, I think too often in this sport, 
we write people off or we think we've got the book on them. We, we yeah. see them at a certain stage in their careers. We go, okay, we saw this guy, you know, win one, lose two, that kind of stuff. And we go, all right, we, we've slotted you away into this category of guy who's pretty good, guy who's always going to be around, but never going to be championship caliber. And we don't often enough allow for the possibility that people can change and people can improve. And especially as they get more experience and they really find their identity as a fighter and, and what they do and they, they gain confidence as they start putting wins together. And we don't often enough allow for that possibility that yeah, maybe that was true of him at a different point in his career, but now things are different. Like now he's changed and he, he has gotten a whole lot better. And I think especially we don't account for the power of momentum in a guy's career. Like when you start really gaining those long win streaks, I think that you see some guys come in there with that sort of confidence that gets them through some of those tough moments. They might get dropped, might get hurt or be in a bad spot early on, but they, they've come into a point at a point in their careers when they really believe and they've got that sort of hot hand that, and I think that that counts for more than people think, especially at this level where the difference between, you know, one fighter and another in the, in the UFC top five, especially at a, a stacked division like lightweight, it's razor thin, mm-hmm. the difference in skill and athletic talent. Yeah, it's a testament to Charles Oliveira's skill that he has been in the UFC for an uninterrupted 11 years now, which is kind of crazy to think about how few fighters not only win championships, but have a tenure, an unbroken tenure in the company for that long. And here is a guy, Ben, who started his UFC career 4-4-1 and one in his first nine fights. Uh, has losses to to Donald Cerrone, Cub Swanson, Frankie Edgar, Max Holloway, Anthony Pettis, Paul Felder. Uh, he's had situations where he lost uh, four of six in 2016, 2017, and then now has righted the ship uh, in the form of nine straight wins and a, and a UFC title. And man, if you're a fan of this sport, it's just a, a great story, not only you know to hear about Charles Oliveira's uh, childhood of poverty, he kind of fought his way out of that, comes to America, and now becomes the UFC champion, but just, just in terms of the sport itself, like a terrific story that Charles Oliveira has these ups and downs, maybe gets shortchanged a time or two, maybe, like you said, starts to seem like a person that uh, we start to think we have seen the best from or we know what he's capable of, and now he's able to to string together this this run of wins and become the champion. Like, if you are a fan of this sport, I, I, I don't know how you could look at Charles Oliveira and not feel great for the guy, uh, and especially to see him, you know, after the fight is over, and, like, he just seems emotionally overwhelmed and like he's like this really means the world to him and it it just felt it felt good man to see to end the pay-per-view on this note of Charles Oliveira winning the title and clearly uh seeing that it means the world to him yeah and then of course on the flip side Michael Chandler just in his second UFC fight getting this title opportunity coming up a little bit short uh came out pedal to the metal highly highly aggressive as we know he likes to do uh, got got knocked down with a low kick early. Oliveira seemed like he was trying to slow him down, but Chandler, you know, for the most part, just kind of bowled right through it. And this this dude, man, I tell you what, this guy pulls punches out of his back pocket and throws them at your face like he is trying to reach inside your body and yank out your spine. It is just like an all power, all the time game for Michael Chandler, and you got to see a little bit of what he is capable of in this fight, despite the fact that he, 
you know, got stunned in the early, early in the second and ended up losing this thing. And a guy, you know, known as a good talker, I guess, Michael Chandler, very gracious in defeat of this one, talking about how he believes in his heart. He's still going to be UFC champion before it's all said and done. Congratulates Charles Oliveira. Uh, so even though he lost and lost in the main event of this championship level fight, this is honestly a fight where I come out of it. And I know we'll talk about this in round three, but I come out of this fight excited to see what happens for both these dudes, to be honest with you. Yeah, well, and, you know, people were asking me a lot afterwards, especially in my, my mailbag today, they were going like, oh, what do you think we do with Michael Chandler next? And the thing that everybody keeps bringing up is, how about Michael Chandler versus Justin Gaethje? Just as a fight, you know, a couple guys coming off of losses in UFC title fights. The the winner would feel like right back in the mix. The loser slides a little further backward. For Michael Chandler, he's 35. He's in a division right now where most of the the... Top five guys are around early 30s with around a decade of experience or, or give or take there and there. Michael Chandler had a lot of good years in Bellator and comes over in the UFC. And it feels like he comes in with this sense that whatever happens for him in the UFC, it's got to happen fast. Yeah, Like he doesn't have time on his side really to hang around and let it slowly develop. And you do when you when you look at the top five, the good thing you you have there if you're Michael Chandler is he seems like an exciting matchup for a whole bunch of different people. And maybe you win one, and depending on how else things shake out in the division, maybe you're not that far from getting back there and getting another chance. Uh, but it does seem like it, it helps you a lot to be somebody where we go, you know what, you lost, but we don't have any bad feelings toward you. We still think that you're an exciting guy that we want to have see fight again, but it's he does not have five more years to hang around and let it develop. Yeah, but That seems yeah. evident. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, I was watching this video of Derek Lewis showing up at the press conference here at UFC 262. I mean, you know you're not going to have a UFC event in Houston. And Derek Lewis isn't going to drop by in his polo shirt and his ball cap yeah. to, to toss off some some memorable quotes. Um, you know, he starts talking about other guys in the division, giving various reasons for... Uh, you know, why he dislikes them. Those reasons, by the way, could range from they have too much hair. And as a bald guy, he doesn't like it when people have too much hair. So fuck them. Um, also, especially singles out Francis Ngannou, saying that he won't buy his pay-per-views because uh, he doesn't want to support him. Won't even stream them, Chad, because if he gets caught streaming them and gets in some kind of legal trouble... Man, it would feel even worse if that was all over a Francis Ngannou fight. But the real reason, it seems, Derek Lewis does not like Francis Ngannou, quote, he makes me look fat when I stand next to him. So fuck him. (laughs) Are you fucking kidding me? Because this, I mean, you know what? As much as I hate this whole thing that we're going to do, where we're going to act like this John Jones thing isn't even happening, we're just going to plow ahead with Francis Ngannou versus Derek Lewis 2 and ignore that massive mega fight that we could make for the heavyweight title, Derek Lewis is going to come in here and promote it in his own special way. And are you fucking kidding me? It actually sort of kind of works on me. Yeah. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Also, man, take a number, Derek Lewis. We all feel fat. Standing yeah. next to Francis Ngannou, regardless of what physical shape you feel like you're in. We yeah. all feel like, fat. The photo, like if you run into Francis Ngannou at the beach, 
You're both out there in your swim trunks. You get one of your friends to take a picture. You're standing next to the champ. You're doing the fist up pose. That's not the photo you want to put on your Tinder profile. You know, that's not the one. You you don't want them to be looking at that photo and be like, well, I wish it was the other one. <laughs> I was just, confused that, about who I swiped right on here. Yeah, because you that's the one that you like put that one on your, your personal social media feed or something. But uh, yeah, that's a matter of fact, you run into friends and got at the beach and you both got your shirts off. Maybe you could just find out where he's going to be later so you can take a picture with him. Yeah. Well, Ben, speaking of social media, the choo-choo train got back on the tracks this weekend as Caitlin Choo-Choo Chukagian salts away a unanimous decision victory over Vivian Arajo uh, in a fight that's probably not going to live in our collective consciousness forever. But when I logged on to Twitter on Saturday afternoon, the conversation around Caitlin Chukagian was of a different nature. Mm-hmm. Altogether, mm-hmm. yeah. See what had happened was it sounds as though at least to hear the Choo Choo herself tell it, somebody hacked her social media accounts a while back, and apparently, without Chukajian noticing for a while, went in and hit the old like button on a bunch of posts that were, how do we put this? of a very particular kind of pornography. Okay. Are you fucking okay. kidding me? I mean, I, I got to be honest. I guess it's kind of like a sneaky and sweet burn, really, as like a very, very low-key hack job, if indeed that's what this was, to go in under someone else's account and like a bunch of tweets that paints a certain kind of picture uh, of that person. Because really, how often do you check your own likes? Never, right? Yeah. You never go in to look at your own likes. So, well, like a only when sneaky... you have used them to bookmark something that you want to find later. Yeah. So uh, I guess in all seriousness, know like why they do that. Why why somebody do that to the choo-choo, Caitlin Chukajian, Ben? You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Although, I I worried a little bit when I saw her response when she was asked about it. Before she went on to explain her, what had happened was, her first response was a joking, hey, I like what I like. Yeah. And then I saw later, <laughs> it's like, people are sharing that, like, that headline, basically. Which, if you don't click on it and read the full quote or watch the full video... What you see just scrolling by is that her saying, like, yeah, I like that, and I'd do it again, because that's what I'm into. And I feel like that might be misrepresenting it a little bit. I mean, I appreciate her willingness to to make a joke out of it at first, but also, like, other people, if you're going to report on that one, you owe it to her not to just lead with that and let it go. Like, <laughs> give her some context on that one. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, Benil Dariush had Tony Ferguson in a tough spot. But you know what? Maybe in retrospect, he should have known that Tony Ferguson ain't tapping to shit. Yeah. Benil Dariush afterwards would say Tony Ferguson basically went into zombie mode uh, after being heel hooked. And he said, you know, I heard his knee pop and, and, it, and it popped loud. But if you tell me that there's a UFC lightweight out there on the roster 
who who is barely even going to notice when you pop his knee. I'm going to absolutely believe that that person is Tony Ferguson. And I'd be surprised that anybody thought different. But the takeaway here is still that Benil Darius goes out there and pretty much dominates Tony Ferguson. Unanimous decision, 30-27s across the board. And now Tony Ferguson, who not so long ago was sitting there with like a 12-fight winning streak, is now looking at a three-fight losing streak. Now, it seems like we all are ready to look at that quick turnaround and go, that's the guy sliding down the backside of his career. However, I would add, you look at the three guys he lost to, Justin Gaethje, and then new champ Charles Oliveira, and now Benio Darius, there's not a bad fighter in that bunch. Yeah. What do you make of where Tony Ferguson is at at this point in his career and where he can still go at age 37? Um, uh, you know, a couple commenters over on the Patreon page have made the point, and I heard Luke Thomas make the point as well earlier today on his show with Brian Campbell. Uh, but some of these weaknesses with Tony Ferguson have always been there, right? Like he, he largely got out wrestled by Kevin Lee. Danny Castillo tested his wrestling. Abel Trujillo tested his wrestling. But in those previous fights, Ferguson was able to do other things to to turn the tide, like utilize his submission game to swing things back in his favor. He beat Kevin Lee by submission. He beat Abel Trujillo by submission. He ended up winning a split decision over Danny Castillo. But right now, I think it kind of seems like a couple of different things have happened at once. Like first, Tony Ferguson is 37 years old, as you mentioned, and he has been in 31 professional MMA fights. And it would be foolish, I think, of us to say that those things are not factors because I think that they quite obviously are. But at the same time, you know, in fights against Justin Gaethje and Charles Oliveira and now Benil Dariush, you are clearly fighting the current cream of the crop, the current upper echelon of fighters at lightweight. And, you know, for the most part, all guys who have incredibly respectable grappling backgrounds. And so maybe some of the stuff that Tony Ferguson could do against Danny Castillo and guys like Kevin Lee uh, just isn't going to work against people like Benil Dariush and Charles Oliveira. And like, I think you saw that on Saturday in, in an overwhelming performance against Benil Dariush. And like, uh, I think we saw it in the second round when Tony Ferguson tried to go for uh, a Darce choke from, from full guard where it's like maybe in the past he would have pulled that off. And that would have been a, a, surprising victory for Tony Ferguson that we would have slotted among his, his, uh, his resume of greatness. But it just like, you know, with Benil Dariush, he's make, he's able to make a couple of small physical adjustments, pop his head out and then go on with what was, uh, like a statement victory for Dariush and an incredibly tenacious, uh, performance. So like, I don't think it takes away from Benil Dariush at all to say that number one, it's possible that a 37 years old, Tony Ferguson has indeed lost a step. And number two, He's fighting guys now who are probably better than the the guys that he fought that he that he built his amazing win streak against, you know. So uh, it's 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 a situation, I think, where like not only is he maybe a shade past his prime, although I'm still very interested to see what happens with Tony Ferguson moving moving forward. But also that like at this point, the, the, the upper level of 155 pounds is a tough place for him. Yeah. Well, retroactively. Does this make you feel or rest a little easier about the fact that we never got that Tony Ferguson versus Khabib fight? Because I know hundred percent like, yes, yeah, it does hundred percent yes, right? Because like, and especially knowing when it would have come around, 
what version of Tony Ferguson we would have gotten against what version of Habib Nurmagomedov we would have gotten. Like just to see what Charles Oliveira was able to do to him, just to see what Benil Dariush was able to do uh, to him just with aggressiveness and top control and, you know, a couple submission attempts here and there, but but a lot of ground and pound. It's really easy in, in retrospect, I think, to see, uh, although we will never know for sure, but just to like see in our minds what Habib would have been able to do and how that fight would have played out. And so I think, you know, it sounds weird to say it, but maybe as like a positive thing, we can kind of let that one go. Like we can, yeah. we can take one list off what the one thing off our list of heartbreaks in this sport, because all the, while it would have been a cool fight when it happened, I think at this stage we can kind of uh, game plan out how it would have gone. The one X factor for me though, is like when you say we thinking about what version of Khabib versus what version of Tony Ferguson that's the part that you can – it was booked so many times, you can pick several different versions that we could have gotten there. I mean, like, they were supposed to fight in, like, 2016. And you could talk yourself into thinking, like, well, maybe the 2016 version of Ferguson versus the 2016 version of Khabib is a little more competitive and is a different fight. But you're right that, especially when we were talking about it as in terms of, like, UFC 249, last time we had it seriously planned, where instead it ends up being – Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje, that version of Ferguson against that version of Khabib, which is better than any previous version. Yeah, that's probably not a competitive fight. I'm, I'm willing to strike that off the list of the, the ones that got away and leave right there at the top. Fedor versus Randy Couture. Uh, I don't want to spend this whole round talking about Tony Ferguson because Benil Dariush is the guy, hero, I think deserves the time. Uh, he gets the win here. He's got an impressive like what is it seven fight UFC win streak now uh and clearly established himself if you didn't know it already as one of the elite fighters in this division and uh a guy who I think is exciting to watch I know that like he took from some flack from the live crowd and frankly like the Houston live crowd lavished as much love and attention on Tony Ferguson as anyone at this event all week and so it's not a surprise to to hear that from them but like uh, I thought this was a great performance from Benil Dariush, kind of showing his tenacity, showing his aggressiveness, really going after Tony Ferguson in all areas, both on the feet and on the mat, getting out of danger when he needed to get out of danger, uh, hurt him with strikes, and then, of course, had that knee bar attempt, I believe, in the second round, or I'm sorry, heel hook attempt in the second round uh, that made Tony Ferguson's leg pop in a loud manner that almost anybody else in the world probably would have tapped over. So uh, I feel like in, you know, in a division that is known for its depth and known for just having a murderer's row of contenders, Benil Dariush fits right in there, man, uh, as one of these guys that in the coming year, I think will be very interesting to see what happens with him. I mean, are you just saying that because you share his views on Marxism? Is that what man, this is about? I tell you what, it's like you can't, it's like you can't feel good for one second. You can never relax. You can never put your guard down in this sport and be like, well, Benil Dariush seems like a cool dude that I'm going to be able to get behind. That jumps on the mic at his earliest possible convenience and says some weird stuff about the victims of Marxist ideology and then challenges Elon Musk to get him the, what, cyber truck that he's been trying to get or something? I don't even understand the context of the Elon Musk call out, but... Uh, just hinting toward the, the fact that Benil Dariush is probably into some stuff that I myself am not into. I just like to imagine in instances like this, 
Karl Marx in the afterlife, hearing his name brought up, you know, UFC 262, and be like, what? What? What What did I? Have you? Are you familiar with my works? What the hell, Benil? I thought we were cool. And just being just totally baffled at what's happening here, because I feel kind of baffled by it, tell you the truth. The whole thing is baffling. In any case, I guess that's going to be, we need to, we need to process our feelings from that as well as we move forward. That's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, if you were worried about the future of the lightweight division without Habib Nurmagomedov, I feel like Saturday night stands as a testament that not only are we going to be okay, but we got some fun stuff on tap. And in certain ways, it feels like this division has just merely reloaded with a bunch of fun contenders, a champion that is easy to root for, and now a bunch of fun stuff coming up in the next few months. Let's start first with Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier, a fight that no doubt is going to captivate a lot of attention as we get closer to the actual night of it. Clearly, uh, Dustin Poirier beat Conor McGregor in their second fight in a way that seemed fairly emphatic. And then now we got to run back this rematch and do the trilogy for reasons uh, that still seem, you know, somewhat questionable to my mind. But we're all going to make some money. And have a fun time. And that's about as much as you can hope for in this sport anymore. But just just watching Charles Oliveira beat Michael Chandler in the manner that he did, my brain was already jumping ahead to a potential matchup about Dustin Poirier. Because I feel like stylistically, that is a fight that is fun as hell. As you think about what could shape up as a potential number one contender fight in this Poirier versus McGregor 3 uh, which one of these guys you feel like shapes up as the better opponent and which one of these guys would you rather if you if you were the UFC matchmaker if I gave you a magic wand uh, which one of these two guys do you think is the is the better challenger for for Charles Oliveira if indeed that's the way it goes for the sake of title legitimacy I think that it has to be Dustin Poirier because the problem you have when you have a, a, a champion who's undefeated and retires still holding the belt, is that then you're going to have this fight for the vacant title, but when you just kind of pick two of the guys who are already in the conversation and then just say, okay, you guys are fighting for the title now, one of you wins it, becomes champ, people are going to come away from it going like, okay, yeah, he won, and that was a big fight and everything, And I, but is he really champ? Is he really the best lightweight in the world? And they're not going to be sold on it yet. It's going to take probably more than one fight for that to happen. If Conor McGregor wins this Dustin Poirier rubber match and then gets put right into the title fight, which I don't think is a given if Conor McGregor wins, then I think people will look at it and be like, okay, even if you go out there and you beat Conor McGregor, what has he done lately? I mean, he went one of two against Dustin Poirier lately. His last win before that was over uh, you know, way closer to the end than the beginning version of Donald Cerrone uh, and got absolutely throttled by Khabib. And I, I think it'll have a harder time giving you that legitimacy. But Dustin Poirier has been you know, so good recently, aside from his loss to Khabib. If he goes out here and beats Conor McGregor for a second time and is like, okay, look, I beat this guy twice in like six months 
And then you put him into the, the title fight. If Charles Oliveira could beat him and, and get that as his first title defense under his belt, I think that helps establish the legitimacy of the, the new title holder a lot more. But yeah. I also think, like, for reasons we've talked about before, if Conor McGregor wins, it's not guaranteed that the UFC, they, he might think of other things for himself to do. As he is known to from time to time, the UFC might think of other things for him to do that are just more lucrative. And I wouldn't blame the UFC if they also had a little bit of reservations about putting a belt back on Conor McGregor because who knows then if he, if you see him again, if, if he defends it according to any reasonable timeline. Uh, I, I think that a Conor McGregor win just opens up the possibilities a little more than I think Dustin Poirier wins and it's guaranteed he's going to turn right around and, and fight Chuck Yalos for that belt. Yeah, and as, in a certain way, to me, it would almost feel like a relief if we could move Conor McGregor into the fully into the fun fights territory phase of his career, uh, where you could have him fight Nate Diaz again, where you could have him fight Jorge Masvidal, would you know what have you, you could, whatever ideas you think could make money uh, with with Conor McGregor, and we could all feel good about that. Uh, he, I feel like even if he were to beat Dustin Poirier, which is certainly not out of the question, like he could definitely land a hot one early in that fight and win by knockout. But even if that happens, don't you kind of get the feeling like, oh man, if Conor McGregor is still going to be wading around in the thick of the lightweight contender pool, it's kind of going to waste a lot of our time. Like we're kind of, uh, we're kind of going to be shackled to him and, and his whims. And, uh, I'm not even sure what the, what the ceiling for the guy's, fates in that division would be even if he beat Dustin Poirier in certain ways Charles Oliveira and Conor McGregor is kind of an interesting matchup because you know we saw in the Michael Chandler fight that Charles Oliveira is somewhat vulnerable to uh, McGregor's strengths and like he could get punched earlier in that fight and and could conceivably lose it but I also feel like if Oliveira is able to weather an early storm from McGregor which seems entirely possible. It kind of starts to feel like a cakewalk to me for Charles Oliveira, just because of the of the way he is able to be a technical striker. The tools that he has on the ground just gives him so many more ways to to win than I think a guy like Conor McGregor. But when I think about Dustin Poirier, I don't think any of those things. I think a fight between Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier would be an absolute goddamn barn burner from start yeah. to finish. And if I could... I would break into the UFC's office and shred all of the paperwork for McGregor versus Poirier and just book a goddamn title fight between Oliveira versus Poirier because I think it would be fun as shit to watch. Uh, what about some of the other people in this division, though? Like, as we mentioned, we we, we now have kind of like a, a, you know, a murderer's row here, so to speak. Justin Gaethje, Benil Dariush, uh, Michael Chandler needs something to do in the wake of this loss. Uh, people talked uh, obviously about a, a Justin Gaethje, Mike and Michael Chandler fight, as you brought up earlier. Uh, we need to pick up the pieces a little bit here with Tony Ferguson and, oh yeah, you've also got, uh, you know, Benil Dariush, Rafael Dos Anjos, Gregor Gillespie now back on the winning ways and Islam Makachev also, uh, back, back in action and scooping up wins here. Uh, that just feels like, again, I feel like we have this conversation every so often about lightweight, but maybe it has just been a while since we've really been able to say this as we moved on from Habib but it feels like we just have another shark tank here just like a lineup of guys any one of which could have amazing fights with any other member of this elite group any any one of which who could conceivably wear the gold frankly yeah well and 
you know, somebody was asking me about Charles Oliveira, like how long should we expect him reasonably to reign as lightweight champion, especially given how competitive the division is and that the flip side to him having this sort of inspiring late career, finally getting to the title fight after so many years in the UFC and so many fights is that has he suffered so much damage along the way that it will affect his ability to stay on top in that situation. And I, you know, it might, like, frankly, like, if you told me, like, okay, he's he's got a window of opportunity here. He's, I think, 31, uh, has been doing this for a little over a decade, and I could see how that stuff is going to catch up to you eventually, and it might be while you're facing the absolute best of the best, trying to hold it down as USC champion. But then you look around at the, the top guys in the division, and they're all pretty much in that situation. I mean, Michael Chandler at 35 is one of the older guys. But they all have similar experience, and, and most of them have been through those sort of ups and downs. And that's the the problem with having a division that's as competitive as this, and the way the UFC does matchmaking. They don't the, the different approach than you see in boxing, where it feels like almost everybody who fights for a title is like thirty and zero. And in the UFC, especially in a division like this, in order to even get to that point, you have you have been through some shit. You have been through some really hard fights against some tough people, and that stuff can take a toll. Uh, and so I think that does make it really hard to predict just how long anybody could really hold down that belt unless you're sort of a generational talent like Abib Nurmagomedov was. Yeah. What about Benil Dariush? He seems like a guy uh, who, who had a big win over the weekend, but also, you know, in some ways is at risk, I think, of getting lost in the shuffle a little bit here as we start to short uh, sort out what is going on with Charles Oliveira. And as you mentioned earlier in the show, people on social media were quick to jump on a Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler fight, just because I think stylistically it would be bananas. But to my mind, if you start thinking about Justin Gaethje as a potential number one contender, given that his most recent loss was to Habib Nurmagomedov, who is now retired and not on the scene anymore, obviously, uh, I started to think Benil Dariush versus Justin Gaethje would not be a fight that I would be mad at at all, especially if you think that uh, Dariush and Gaethje are both going to have to fight one more time while we figure out uh, the white, the right guy sweepstakes and find out who's going to fight Charles Oliveira. So, like, I don't know. I started to think about Benil Dariush. I hope that he doesn't get uh, overshadowed here by McGregor and Poirier and some of these other guys who are going to be doing it at, the, at a top level. I would like to see him fight uh, someone like Justin Gaethje for something resembling a title eliminator here in the next you know, season or so. Yeah. I mean, and that's a, a fight that's tough to call in a lot of ways, but I wouldn't be mad at that. I mean, again, you, you can make a lot of different matchups here and there's hardly a way to make a bad one with who you have sitting around at, at lightweight right now. It's just such a tough division where you got, you got so many good fighters in the, the top five that you, you look outside of that. Like even the guys who are ranked like eight, nine, ten, and, they're really talented fighters, but also you feel like in this division, you still seem like you are four or five fights away from a title at that point, yeah. just because there's yeah. just so much else going on. Potentially, uh, one of the most interesting things I think will be to see what happens to Tony Ferguson. And as you look at this list, I don't even know who you slot him up against, like considering where he is at his career, where he is in his career at this point. Uh, just uh You'd like to think that Tony Ferguson will get a competitive fight and not necessarily someone who's going to assuredly send him to his fourth straight loss. But uh, like, I don't know who that person would be at this point if you're going to give him a relevant matchup. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I still think, I mean, one of the things about being the weirdsmobile that is Tony Ferguson is that even the three straight losses, people are still interested in seeing you. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Uh, all right, Ben, let's do just saying stuff, and then uh, then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, I, I have a tweet. I have a tweet from the future. Oh, good. I built a time machine. Okay. I traveled to the future, and naturally I used that awesome power to read the Twitter timelines of noted MMA fighters. So that, that sounds like you. That sounds like something you do. I have, I have a tweet by Conor McGregor from the day after he fights Charles Oliveira for the lightweight championship. Okay. Right, are you ready? Uh, yeah. Hit, lay it on me. Here's a future tweet from Conor McGregor. He writes, well, exclamation point. It's a mad game. I had no way of knowing my opponent would, could choke me with my own arm. I will go back to the gym and train defense for this move. Looking forward to the rematch once I am fully prepared. I'm just saying. You know, I'm just saying. this is why you're such a successful fiction writer, is your ability to just get into the head of a character. Manifest Adopt the, these worlds. the diction. The worldview, everything. It's all right there. I'm just saying. I'm just, just saying. saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying. Angela Hill has put me in a tough spot. Okay. <laughs> How? Explain. Well, Angela Hill is pretty good at doing her own self-promotion. God knows the UFC isn't doing a lot of it. And also good at coming up with her own merchandise. And she has a new t-shirt out, Chad. This t-shirt, I'm looking at it right now on ProWrestlingTees.com. You can find it among all her other merchandise there at ProWrestlingTees.com slash Angie Overkill. And it is a picture of the Goya painting of Saturn devouring his son. And underneath that, she has put in big red letters, Bitch Fucking Season. Now... Obviously, I would like to buy this T-shirt. Yeah, but I see you know, a problem. I see a problem. I would like developing. to support Angela Hill. I think that's kind of a rad idea to repurpose this Goya painting as an MMA T-shirt, and the whole thing that she has had. We're talking about how it seems to be constantly bitch fucking season as far as Angie Hill is concerned. But then I picture myself going about my daily life. I picture myself pulling open the drawer, seeing the bitch fucking season t-shirt in there, thinking about putting it on, and then thinking through everywhere I might have to go during the day, which is basically the grocery store, picking up my kids from school, or, you know, down to the gas station to get a cup of coffee. Yeah. Now that I'm fully vaxxed, maybe to the bar on the corner to sit there with a glass of whiskey and watch the NHL playoffs. And then I picture myself in the bitch fucking season t-shirt. And I picture my interactions with the world as a result yep. of that t-shirt. Yep. I picture what I look like. What messages they get when they see me. And then they see the bitch fucking season. And I go, I just don't know if I can do it. Much as I want to support her. If I buy it, I'm just going to have to, it's going to have to be a home t-shirt. You know? But I guess what I would say is this. There are others of you out there in the listening audience who could pull off this bitch fucking season t-shirt. You know, 
Tracy Dickinson walks around the bitch fucking season t-shirt. I'm not saying she's going to have zero problems, but she's not going to have the same kind of problems I'm going to have. Yeah. Think about it. You know? Because it is a rad shirt, and I want someone out there to be getting the use out of it. It just... Not sure that someone is me. I'm just saying. Just saying. (laughs) Uh, Remember last week when we talked about the Smashing Machine, the Mark Kerr uh, documentary on the movie club, and we talked about the scene where he's in the waiting room at the doctor's office and there's an old lady in there and he's got to explain to her what MMA is. Because now she imagine, makes the mistake of getting into his business by asking about his bruises, but yeah. And now imagine you're sitting there mm-hmm. in your bitch fucking season t-shirt. Yep. Awkward. Too awkward. I feel like the the real danger, I wear my Middle Easy t-shirt sometimes that has the Wally Dishmail rant just written across it. And there, you know, that that one perplexes a lot of grocery store cashiers. Uh, yeah. But they will at least then like engage you about it. They ask you about it and you tell them, look, it's not worth either of our time for me to explain it. But this one, I feel like the real danger is they're not going to ask about it. No, they're, they're just going to look at it, look at me and leap to some conclusions. And then there we are. Yeah. You are going to have to register for some kind of watch list if you wear mm-hmm. that T-shirt. And that's we don't need that. In any case, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We're out of here. We'll be over at the uh, Patreon all week with the Wednesday live chat, the Thursday movie club where we're watching the raid. And of course, then the Friday power hour as we cruise into a weekend where Cody Garbs is going to return from his long haul COVID-19 symptoms. And he's going to fight Rob Vaught at Bantamweight uh, at this UFC fight night event. Also on this card, Ben Rothwell making what seems like kind of a fast turnaround here to get back in the cage. This is where we're going to put the Jack Hermanson versus Edmund Shabazian fight that was supposed to be at UFC 262 but got scratched. Uh, A women's featherweight fight, the rare women's featherweight fight with Felicia Spencer and Norma Dumont-Viana. So uh, maybe some stuff you want to watch on there. I don't know. And uh, then we'll be back Monday with another episode of The Proper to break down everything that happens. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Now, see, one thing for you to consider, though, is that it might not be that big a deal because your face basically says it's bitch fucking season all the time anyway. So That's it, true. just having a shirt to, to back that up might not be too, too bad. But see, I worry. Then, then I'm just I'm confirming for everyone what they already assumed about me upon seeing this visage. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, they're going, they look at me and they're going, especially if I'm going to be walking around maskless these days, fully vaccinated, and then, then they're, going to, they're going to see the whole thing and they're going to go, I bet for that guy it is, oh, yeah, no, there it is, says it right on this t-shirt. Suspicion's confirmed. <laughs>